Picacho Peak is a lonely spit of volcanic rock. Anyone who has driven between Phoenix and Tucson on Interstate 10 has seen it about halfway through their drive, this mini Erebor that sits just south of the highway east of Eloy. It's separated from a small mountain range to the north, making it stand out as it rises sharply from the desert floor. The peak, which stands at just under 3,400 feet and has a distinctive horn shape, is believed to be the revenant of some volcanic activity and erosion. By the way, the name itself is redundant as Picacho literally means peak in Spanish. Today, it's part of a state park of the same name and is actually one of my favorite hikes in the entire state. Though it is a killer workout, you can get a great view of saguaros, desert wildflowers, and even a nearby ostrich ranch from the top. It's pretty spectacular, let me tell you. I've added some photos on the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com, if you want to check it out. But that's today. In the past, the peak was an important landmark, as it is visible from as far away as Tucson and for centuries was used to guide many an Amerindian, Spaniard, Mexican, and American to and from their destination. But this lonely peak also has another claim to fame. It was at its base in early 1862 that Union and Confederate troops met in a small battle that might mark as far west as the Civil War ever reached. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 39, The California Column. Welcome back, everybody. I hope all of you in the U.S. had a wonderful Thanksgiving and were able to enjoy the holiday, you know, despite present world circumstances. When we left off last week, the Confederacy was well on its way to achieving its goal in the Southwest. During the banner month of February 1862, they had officially organized the Territory of Arizona, defeated Union forces at the Battle of Valverde in New Mexico, and Captain Sherrod Hunter had taken control of Tucson, much to the acclaim of the local citizenry. Now, I don't mean to be a downer to the boys in gray, but this right here is pretty much the high-water mark for the rebel cause. In the months after this, there'll be a couple more victories, but it's mostly a downhill slide as they slowly had to retreat from their so recently gained territorial acquisitions. So, how did this happen? That's a great question, and fortunately, that's also going to be our course of study for the next couple weeks. And since this is a podcast about the history of Arizona, we're going to take the adventures of Hunter and his men in Tucson first. Though he had achieved his mission, from the moment the Confederate captain rode into Tucson, his days were essentially numbered. Because as early as July 1861, the Union top brass was already thinking about how to drive out Texan rebels should they do something as audacious as try to take New Mexico. True, these were vague notions at best, and there were more pressing matters at hand. So during this time, the governor of California was called upon to raise volunteer troops to squash any potential rebellion in Southern California. 
These troops were also thought to be a good way to eventually protect telegraph lines and mail routes cutting from Fort Laramie in Wyoming through current Utah, Nevada, and into California. Of course, then the Texan rebels under Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor decided to do something as audacious as try to take New Mexico. Overnight, the mission of these Californian volunteers changed. Others would be raised to protect the mail lines. These forces were now needed to drive out the Confederate troops who insisted that they now controlled something they were calling the Territory of Arizona. Throughout July and August 1861, California was able to raise two regiments of cavalry and five regiments of infantry, with other units being organized as the war dragged on. Overall, between 1861 and 1865, some 15,725 Californian volunteers would be organized and sent to different assignments throughout the West. Author Andrew E. Masick, in his book The Civil War in Arizona, The Story of the California Volunteers, remarks that half of California's population was men of military age, a side benefit of so many young strapping gold seekers heading west. Many were risk-takers used to hard physical work, Masick said, who were lured in by the promise of pay and three square meals a day, not to mention their sense of patriotism. Masick also contrasts them with the enlisted men of the regular army duking it out in the main theater of the war back east. Those forces, according to him, were riddled with alcoholism, had a 33% desertion rate, were suffering from various, um, let's call them social diseases, and did not have the same flexible mindset. However, while this California force was taking shape, in August 1861, no thought was yet given to marching them across the horrible dry desert to hit Texas from the west. Instead, the top commanders were planning to go for the underbelly, thinking to hit Texas from the south. Wait, you might be thinking, south of Texas is Mexico. And you would be right. Union forces were actually thinking of marching across Sonora and Chihuahua to strike at Texas from an unlikely direction. Early state historian Thomas Farish even relates that permission from the Mexican government had been obtained for this. But rumors of secessionist talk in Southern California ended these plans, as the troops headed there first to put the kibosh on all that. It was around this time that the talk began turning towards striking east from Fort Yuma, on the Colorado. And the man put in charge of this push was 47-year-old Colonel James Henry Carleton. Carleton had been born in Maine in 1814 and had been commissioned as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army in 1839, eventually seeing service in the Mexican-American War. He served with the first dragoons in the West, being one of the officers in 1859 tasked with burying the victims of the Mountain Meadows Massacre in southern Utah from two years beforehand. For our purposes today, I'm not going to dive into the complex, sordid tale of Mountain Meadows, but it, it will actually play a role in our story moving forward. Suffice it to say, Carlton's was one of the first army reports that really pointed the finger at a conspiracy to both massacre a wagon train during the height of the Mormon War and then to cover it up. In 1861, he received his promotion to colonel, 
and was assigned to the 1st California Volunteer Infantry Regiment. The historic consensus about Carleton is that, at the very least, he was a brilliant commander and a strict disciplinarian. When placed in charge, his commanding officer wrote that he was, quote, an officer of great experience, indefatigable, and active, end quote. Massick described him as, quote, lean, sharp-featured, and ramrod straight. He was also energetic, articulate, and always demonstrated foresight in both the logistic and strategic aspects of organizing, equipping, and deploying troops, end quote. He also had a tendency to be very secretive, rarely tipping his hand when it came to plans or troop movements. His men were explicitly ordered not to correspond with newspapers. He often wrote messages in code or Greek. Some dispatches were sent on honest-to-goodness toilet paper to make them easier to conceal or destroy should it come to that. And his most trusted messengers were often sent with fake dispatches, along with the real ones, and the orders were, if they were to be captured, to turn over the fake dispatches and destroy the real ones. Others, however, give a less flattering view of Carleton. State historian Thomas Sheridan said, quote, A self-righteous, deeply religious New Englander, Carleton craved battle with the Confederates, whom he considered vile secessionists, end quote. Edwin R. Sweeney summed him up as, quote, A disciplinarian, a martinet, and a highly principled man who imposed his morality and devotion to duty on his subordinates. A devout Christian, a good family man, and a gentleman, he was unwavering to those who dissented from his views. The view from his lens was too narrow. His decisions, based on his morals and convictions, were of course correct. He could not be dissuaded. End quote. I want you to keep all that in mind, because Carlton is not a one-and-done character in our story. And all these attributes are going to play into how things will eventually shake out in Arizona and New Mexico moving forward. Carleton took command of some 2,350 troops, a mixture of infantry, cavalry, and artillery that would soon enough be nicknamed the California Column. Slowly, these forces began to coalesce at Fort Yuma. In October 1861, Carlton had Lieutenant Colonel Joseph R. West advance with a small force to the Colorado. Like Anza nearly a hundred years before him, and the border survey team from just a decade before, West came to know the difficulty of traversing the 180 miles of desert in southeastern California. He staggered his men's departure, no more than 100 at a time, to avoid overtaxing wells and other resources and traveling at night was also common. But when they reached the Colorado later that winter, they had the exact opposite problem. Heavy rains caused flooding in the region, making roads into muddy bogs. The Colorado even swelled and overflowed its banks, rising so much that for a short time, Fort Yuma actually became an island. These torrents also washed away more than a little of the army's stockpiles. Finally, though, by February 1862... The rains had stopped and supplies for the column were beginning to arrive. Of course, this being the 1860s, getting supplies to Fort Yuma was, like it had always been, a logistical challenge. Supplies, food, and animal feed had to be slowly hauled overland. 
or it would be shipped from San Francisco or another Pacific port down the coast of California to the Gulf of California and up to the Colorado on those steamboats we discussed way back in episode 24. Once all this was at Fort Yuma, though, everything had to be hauled by animals or men as the troops kept moving east. But one last tidbit about the logistical challenge is that here, in the winter of 1861-1862, we find our old friend High Jolly, with his fellow camel driver Greek George, and his camels helping ferry things from Carlton, who was still in California overseeing things, through the desert to Fort Yuma. It's always nice to unexpectedly run into old friends, right? Once his advance force had arrived at Fort Yuma, Carlton's orders were to, and I'm quoting him here, drill, 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 until your men become perfect as soldiers, as skirmishers, as marksmen. Major Edward Rigg, who commanded the fort when the California column began to arrive, took this order to heart. Every day the men practiced marksmanship with blanks and drilled as tight formations and diffuse skirmishers. At night they were to study the tactical manuals of the day and were expected to be able to recite passages of them from memory. Carlton also sent detailed instructions about the placement of artillery to command all approaches to the fort. Additional orders were to sink or bring into range of the guns all ferries on the Colorado River below or above Fort Yuma. In his typical need for secrecy and control, Carlton wanted to make sure that no one would cross the river without at least the army's knowledge, if not its permission. His orders were, again, for the men not to trust any of the ferry or steamboat operators and to monitor them for any signs of southern sympathies, or even worse, Signs of them being spies. Spies were something that Carlton knew something about himself. By this point, Hunter had taken Tucson, and both Carlton and Rigg already had spies in the city. These men traveled to Tucson via Sonora to avoid suspicion, and sent messages in code, the key to which Rigg had locked up in Fort Yuma. One made the 500-mile round trip from Yuma to Tucson and back again in 22 days, eventually reporting to Carlton that the Apache had indeed gotten bolder in their attacks, and that protection by the Union Army from this threat would be welcomed by the residents. Something, no doubt, that Sylvester Mowry would have agreed with wholeheartedly. But from the intelligence that he was receiving, Rigg was most concerned about a man named Amy White. Amy M. White was a loyal Unionist who ran a mill at some Odom villages on the Gila River about 90 miles northwest of Tucson. White had been gathering flour and other supplies for the Union troops to use when they marched east out of Fort Yuma. Additionally, some advance parties had begun to stockpile animal feed and supplies in locations between Fort Yuma and the Odom villages. With Confederate Captain Hunter now in charge of Tucson, Rigg was concerned that they might seize White and his mill, along with burning or seizing the supply depots the Union forces were counting on. To help ensure that these supplies would not be touched, orders came down from Carlton to dispatch Captain William McCleave. McCleave was an old friend and subordinate of Carlton, 
who had served under him with the dragoons and had his explicit trust. The younger officer had also, in 1860, quit the dragoons and instead had been helping with the army's camel corps in Southern California. Carlton had pushed for him to be assigned to his command in 1861, and McCleave had gladly joined forces with his old friend again. He was put in charge of Company A, 1st California Cavalry. Now, I'm getting a muddle of different dates from various sources, but at the beginning of March, McCleave was sent out with his men into Arizona. Ostensibly, his orders were to fight hostile Apache, but this was just another example of Carleton's penchant for smoke and mirrors. In reality, McCleave was to take a company of cavalry and infantry up the Gila River to the Odom villages, checking on the supplies and Mr. White in the process, and then head south to take Tucson before Hunter even knew they were in the territory. Which is not too crazy, because remember that Hunter only has like a hundred guys with him in Tucson. In fact, Carlton wrote his friend detailed instructions on how to, quote, be able to capture and destroy Mr. Hunter and his band of renegades and traitors, end quote. He also promised that if McCleave succeeded, it would be an achievement he would look back on for the rest of his life. Over-eager to scout ahead, check on the supplies, or maybe just get on with his friend's plan, McCleave pushed forward out of Fort Yuma with an advance party of, wait for it, nine men. Even then, several days later, he left six of those men at a stage station known as the Tanks and pushed forward with the remaining three to White's Mill. He arrived well after dark. One source said it was even right before daybreak and pounded on White's door, asking to see him. McCleave was let in and introduced himself and explained the situation, including the fact that there were only nine Union officers in the area. And it's at this point that White and his men pulled revolvers on McCleave and his men. Because, you see, McCleave had just fallen victim to one of the classic blunders. No, not getting involved in a land war in Asia, but rather falling for a sting operation. It turns out that the man who had introduced himself as White, and the others with him dressed in civilian clothing, were none other than Captain Hunter and his troops. At the beginning of March, so just after sending out that small party to go meet with Governor Pesquera down in Sonora, and really days after taking Tucson, Hunter and the rest of his men marched to the Pima villages. In his own account, Hunter says that he had heard that White was preparing wheat for a train of something like 50 wagons that were expected at any moment. This turned out to be nothing but rumor, though it may have been based on the Union Army that was getting ready to push east, despite all of Carleton's attempts at secrecy. Still, Hunter was able to take White into custody, and then decided to give all 1,500 sacks of flour he had ready to the local Odom as a goodwill gesture. And this is when he had the idea to pose as White and wait for the Union troops to come to him. It's possible that he had just been looking for intelligence on numbers and whatnot, but when McCleave let slip that he literally only had nine men with him, it was an opportunity too good to pass up. For his part, McCleave was humiliated, and we get some amusing anecdotes about his reaction. 
Masik claims that he refused to surrender at first, but Hunter told him, quote, if you make one single motion, I'll blow your brains out, end quote. Early state historian James H. McClintock says McCleave proposed that he and his nine men should be allowed to fight Hunter's forces, which seems kind of insane considering that Hunter had somewhere above 70 men with him. Of course, the captain refused this offer. Finally, state historian Marshall Trimble says McCleave challenged Hunter right then and there to a fist fight. Winner, go free. Much like McClintock's version, Hunter decided to pass on this offer as well. I honestly don't know which version actually happened, but the overall feeling is that McCleave was trying to salvage his sullied honor. But with McCleave now in his custody, Hunter then sent men out to round up the six men that had been left at the tank station. Eventually, the real White and McCleave were sent to Masilla, care of one Lieutenant Jack Swilling. If that name rings a bit familiar, it's because we met Jack Swilling back in the introduction to episode four, and that's when, you know, after the Civil War had ended, he was helping clear out the Hohokam canals in what would become Phoenix. Keep a sharp ear out because Swilling will pop up again a time or two before the conflict is brought to a close. As for his charges, McCleave would eventually be released for two Confederate lieutenants as part of a prisoner exchange, while White would be let go when the rebels were forced to retreat from New Mexico. At this point, Hunter had learned about the various supply depots that had been set up heading east out of Fort Yuma and decided to rob the Union forces of these advantages. A platoon of mounted rangers then rode west, hitting six different stations and setting fire to the stored hay at each one. All was well and good until they came to the Stanwyck Station, near modern-day Sentinel and roughly 80 miles from Fort Yuma. Because that's where they accidentally bumped into some Yankees. It was just two mounted advance scouts, but still it was confirmation that a larger force was on its way. Hunter's men fired on the two, managing to wound one of the privates in the shoulder. These two prudently decided not to return fire, but immediately wheeled around and headed back to the main force to report the encounter. Hunter's men, meanwhile, realized, oh crud, something big is coming, and turned around themselves. Another advance party from the Union Army would chase after these men, but were unable to catch them. Now, I mentioned this encounter for one very specific reason it might be the furthest west that shots were fired as part of the Civil War. Now, during my career as a journalist, I was taught to always be careful about calling something the first, the last, the latest, the only, etc. Because these things are always incredibly hard to pin down. In this case, Trimble does relate that there will be an 1863 gun battle in La Paz, a short-lived mining community along the Colorado near Ehrenberg, that might also have claim to westmost Civil War shot fired. Either way, though, Arizona has this very dubious honor. But this skirmish and the capture of McCleave also led to another of those labels that we should be careful about saying, and that is the westernmost battle of the Civil War. Remember that McCleave was a close friend of Carleton, When it was learned that he had been captured, 
The hope was that the Union vanguard could advance quickly on Tucson, take it, and recover McCleave before he had made it all the way to Mesilla. And a force of some 272 men started marching toward the Odom villages on the Gila River. The interesting side note here is that Carlton, still worried about letting anything slip, gave explicit instructions that his men should tell anyone they encountered that they were there to hunt down Tonto Apache. In reality, however, and much to his men's consternation, Carlton's orders were the exact opposite. They were not to fire on any Apache they encountered. Most thought this was the most idiotic order ever. After all, we are still in the heyday of the only good Indian is a dead Indian mentality, but the soldiers feared Carlton's discipline much more than the Apache, and so did obey. By April 12, 1862, this advance force made it to the Odom villages. It's here they learned that Hunter and his main force had made it back to Tucson, but a small rebel company of 10 to 12 men was in the area of Picacho Peak, roughly 45 miles north of Tucson. Lieutenant Swilling was said to have left there recently, and Swilling, you will remember, had McCleave. The vanguard's orders were to make it to the abandoned Fort Breckenridge at the junction of the Gila and the San Pedro, but the commander decided to divert to Picacho. If he could take that small Confederate company, the road to Tucson would be wide open, which meant a shorter distance to possibly catch up with Swilling and retrieve McCleave. As part of this plan, the main column was to march directly down the road to Tucson, while a dozen or so cavalry under Lieutenant Ephraim Baldwin was to swing wide to the west around Picacho, and Lieutenant James Barrett and a dozen or so cavalry would swing wide to the east to help cut off any potential rebel escape. It was a good plan. However, it did not survive long after it was no longer just on paper. Because Barrett and his men had a much shorter route to get into position than Baldwin. And against the advice of the guide with him, the lieutenant didn't dismount his men, but proceeded until he had almost stumbled upon the rebel contingent, which was, you know, just playing cards next to an old mail station at Picacho Pass. Impatient and not waiting for any reinforcements, shortly past noon on April 15, 1862, Barrett actually fired his revolver into the air and called on the Confederate men to surrender. This call, as you might imagine, was answered by gunfire from the Confederate forces, which literally knocked four Union soldiers from their horses. An intense fight ensued, with Barrett leading a charge into a thicket of chaparral scrub. This advance actually led to the capture of three of the rebels. But as Barrett was finishing tying up one of the prisoners, a bullet struck him in the neck, breaking it and killing him instantly. Fighting continued for another hour, but in the end, Barrett and another soldier were dead. One more would die the next morning, and three more were wounded. The Confederates only suffered the loss of those three captured men and were able to retreat to Tucson. The Battle of Picacho Pass, which might lay claim to the westernmost actual battle of the Civil War, had ended up as another Confederate victory. Or if not a victory per se, at least not an out-and-out defeat. The main Union force made it on scene later in the afternoon, rushing once they heard the sound of gunfire, 
Unfortunately, they were too late to stop the rest of the rebels from hightailing it back to Tucson. The next day, the Union commander made the almost baffling choice to have his men retreat up the road and back to the Odom villages, a distance of almost 40 miles. Many of his soldiers and subordinates objected, seeing as they were within striking distance of the rebel base at Tucson, but the commander was worried about supplies if the Confederates had held their ground in the city. Now, I'm not a military man, but I agree with the historians who point out that this retreat was ill-advised. Remember, once again, Hunter only has like a hundred guys in total. This advance Union column had more than double that number. If they had pressed on to Tucson, it's possible they could have taken the city right then and there. But spooked by how the wily Confederates had been able to play the Union so far, the commander chose to be cautious. Pauline Weaver, the old trail guide who had been along for this march, was ultimately disgusted by the bungling of the whole affair. He decided to leave the company, shouting out as he headed west, quote, If you fellers can't find the road from here to Tucson, you can go to hell. End quote. Once at the Pima villages, the troops dug in. Two weeks later, another chunk of the Union forces arrived from Fort Yuma. Carlton also ordered that a new fort, named Fort Barrett in honor of the lieutenant at the Battle of Picacho Pass, be built at the location. Now, at this point you might be saying, wait, didn't you tell us at the start of the episode that we were going to be talking about the rebel downslide? And yet, all we've heard today is how the rebels managed to outfox the Union forces. Well, yes, I did say that, and yes, you did hear that. However, while they had managed to come away pretty unscathed, the rebels now had to deal with the fact that they were vastly outnumbered by a superior force that was deep in their territory, intent on falling on them like a hammer. And next week, we'll see how both Carlton in Arizona and Union forces in New Mexico will truly cause the rebel hold on the Southwest to collapse. Also, in between all of this, both sides will have to deal with the fact that the territory's original antagonists, the Apache, didn't decide to put their own war on hold just so the boys in blue and gray could duke it out. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.